Good morning. Before we start, I also wanted to share some of the emails I've received in the last week. Um, this first one's from Massachusetts. It says, I'm so pleased with the response to your message of receiving at my church from the middle-aged and young adults. I have given out 100 copies of the first two seminars, and there are more requests every Sabbath. One of my Sabbath school brothers came to me after viewing the series Grateful, impressed with how easy the message was retained. He had been a Seventh-day Adventist in fear all his life and felt like the scales were removed from his eyes after viewing the seminars. I am so impressed by the changes I see in members who have received this message. We are in one accord. I am saddened by the negative responses of the older people in the church. I am verbally attacked any time I uh, talk about imposed law, uh, but I believe my mission is to enlighten everyone I can. I watch your Sabbath class on YouTube every Friday night, and I feel like I am part of the class. All of you are in one accord, and I am so blessed to have found you. I pray that all of you continue to spread this message, and I am committed to doing my part. Can you please send me 50 more copies of the three DVDs and 50 of the Truth, Love, and Freedom Bible study guides? A lot of the members of my church are from other countries, and I am told this study guide is much easier to understand. Many of the people I meet in the community receive this study guide more easily than Amazing Facts. And then this one, uh, as you know, Christy and I have been praying for some time that God would bring more people to help us share this message. And then I received uh, this email this week. It says, uh, I want to start off thanking you for the work that you do and the blessing of the seminar God in your brain. I was, it was inspiring, and I immediately started sharing it with the people I know. I'm a Bible worker and belong to a network of Bible workers all across the country. I've told them about your seminar and would like them to distribute them where, uh, where they are as well. I'm not sure how many I can ask for because combined we have thousands of Bible study students every week, so I ho- hope I'm not asking too much. Please send 50 to Colorado and 100 to California. Thank you in advance. These are two of our hubs and therefore can get them out into the field with the other Bible workers. If there is any other literature we can pass out that will help you guys out as well, please send it along. Anything I can do to help advertise your ministry, I would like to do from California. And then this is the last one I'll read today. Uh, I received this from an individual in Minnesota. We have shared close to 150 of the new DVD presentations. We shared the DVD with friends from our pastor's uh, last district near the Twin Cities. They uh, shared them for Vespers, and they were so well received. After the first one was shown, over twice as many folks attended the second week, and they had a wonderful discussion, and folks were excited about this message. Our pastor happened to be visiting his past district during the fourth session. Up to that point, he had not seen the DVD. However, gave strong caution on it it when it was shared with folks at our church, which caused many never to watch it. Isn't that the case? Hadn't seen it, but he's going to caution people not to watch it. Isn't that the case? Please remember this congregation and us in your prayers. Uh, We'll be putting together food for thought with our friends there. Uh, Our friends there. Satan cannot stand the truth of God's character coming uh, to light. And as you well know, the battle is on. If there are some things in particular that I should not leave out in sharing with friends, please share. Our pastor will not be moved from his stance. He preaches that penal substitution theology more than ever, makes our hearts sad, and makes it very difficult to share truth in our congregation. We have a small congregation up here and many miles in between churches. Most of all, we covet your prayers. So let's go ahead and have prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are able to share a message that is healing and restorative, a message about your character of love. 
We ask that your spirit will join us today. We ask for our friends all over the world who are sharing this message but reaching and meeting opposition. We pray that your uh, spirit will inspire them, enlighten them, and move obstacles out of the way, that this message can lighten the world and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So as we thought about this group who is meeting opposition, I, uh, I want to uh, remind us that this is not new. This type of opposition is not new. This is uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 53 and 54. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. It's interesting that they say teachers of the law, isn't it? It seems like those who really like the law seem to oppose the truth. I don't know what that's about. First Corinthians sixteen eight nine, but I will stay on it. This is Paul. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. <clears throat> Philippians one twenty seven twenty eight. Whenever whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Always opposition to the truth about God. It's always going on. Why? Why is there always opposition? Why is there always opposition? Well, Paul said in Thessalonians, um, before the second coming, he said, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until a rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple do you think that is? That's exactly, that's the spirit temple. And he sets himself up in the spirit temple where people misrepresent God as Satan's version of God. So today's lesson is the law of God and the law of Christ. The law of God and the law of Christ. We will talk about that title, to think about that title as we go through. What what is it? The law of God and the law of Christ. We'll, We'll unpack that as we go through, the way that's worded there. First paragraph, it says, In most nations, a hierarchy of laws exist. At the top are laws that come from the national government that bind all who reside in the country. Then there are laws on the provincial level that pertain to the inhabitants of certain territories. Finally, local laws govern the smallest districts. Although each division within a country is permitted to make laws that are relevant to its constituents, none can make a law that contradicts the law of the nation. And though... And though circumstances may dictate that a certain law be applied in different ways, the application cannot deviate from the spirit of the law. Any concerns about this paragraph? No. Seriously, hopefully multiple red flags were popping in your head. Any fundamental flaw that foundationally undermines our ability to correctly understand God and his government in this paragraph? Yes. What is it? God's laws imposed on humanity. There it is. It, it says this paragraph it uses, think about this. This paragraph uses kingdoms of the world as the template or the model or the example or the comparator for us to learn about the kingdom of God. It's, it's even in the title. I mean, implying that there are two separate laws. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus speaking. My kingdom is, and you all know it, not of this world. If it were, notice, notice what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would behave in a certain way. What would they do? Notice. If my, my kingdom was like the kingdom of the world, my servants would use the world's methods. What are the world's methods? Force. Force. Coercion. They would fight. My kingdom isn't of this world. In other words, my kingdom, if it was of the world, it would require power and coercive authority to enforce the laws upon people. But it's not of this world. We don't work that way. 
My kingdom, he says, and he finishes, but my kingdom is from another place. His kingdom is not like earthly kingdoms. It doesn't use coercion force. That's Satan's model. That's Satan's way of governing. It's earthly governments. But his kingdom operates differently. Yet our lesson uses the model of earthly governments to teach us about how God runs his universe. Hmm. Well, this is from how our church used to teach it a hundred years or so ago. This is out of a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 77. The germ, is in the, the germ in the seed grows by the unfolding of the life principle which God has implanted. Its development depends upon no human power. So it is with the kingdom of Christ. It is a new creation. Its principles of development are the opposite of those that rule the kingdoms of the world. Did you hear that? It's going to, she unpacks it further, but, but notice that God's kingdom is the opposite of what the world does. Earthly governments prevail by physical force. They maintain their dominion by war. But the founder of the new kingdom is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit represents worldly kingdoms under the symbol of fierce beasts of prey. But Christ is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Notice what he takes away. Notice the difference here. Do you notice what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, the Lamb of God, which pays the penalty to the judge in heaven. And we actually is taking away sin from us. It's healing. It's restorative. In his plan of government, there is no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. Think think what that means. That means you can't have a doctrine that says, if you don't accept Jesus as your Savior, at the end he will have to judge you guilty and torture you and kill you. You can't have that. If you really believe he doesn't use coercion, because as soon as you bring that doctrine in, he's coercing. If you don't, I'll be forced by holiness and righteousness to kill you, to torture you. Try that on your spouse. It doesn't work. Okay, this is the, so what's in the lesson is not what we originally taught. So his plan of government, there was no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. The Jews looked for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way as the kingdoms of the world. To promote righteousness, they resorted to external measures. They devised methods and plans. What, what does it mean to, to devise external measures? To make up rules and laws. Impose law. This is the imposed law system that has infected Christianity, and we teach that God acts this way, and he doesn't. But Christ, notice this, but Christ implants a principle. By implanting truth and righteousness, he counterworks error and sin. Amen. And it can only be one. It cannot be coerced. Truth is compelling. Truth sets free. So, what do we learn from this paragraph? Earthly governments operate how? Notice the laws that earthly governments use. If we look at this paragraph and say, ah, okay, and they're going to use this paragraph to then try to to extrapolate that this is how it is with God. He's got a big law and he's got little laws and he puts these laws upon us and then he enforces them. Also, Tim, doesn't it suggest that Christ adds additional stuff that God doesn't? Or he takes away stuff. Or takes away stuff. Yeah, there's somehow there's a difference between the God, law of God and the law of Christ. Yes. I think Christ is the bridge to get to God. If you want to. I love the way you say that. No question. He is the bridge, the mediator, the conduit, the connecting link. Lots of ways to that. But yes, he connects humanity back with God. I like that. Conversely, the laws of our land are not based on the Ten Commandments as we are being told. 
<laughs> so have you ever wondered why Christ hasn't returned yet? Ever crossed your mind? Ever think? Ever contemplate on that? Okay, why? We've been told first off in the New Testament, but later at the founding of our church, we were even told that the time is the crisis at the door. He could come in our lifetime, and we've been told this, right? Yet here we are, hundred and how many years later? Seventy? What is it getting up to? Well, it was founded in eighteen sixty-three, so one hundred and twenty years now. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. But the Lord still hasn't come. I'm going to suggest to you it's because the church hasn't gotten ready. Think about this. When Christ returns, and you know the metaphor of the bridegroom returning for his bride? This is the metaphor the Bible uses over and over. Does he want to come back for a child bride? No. No. He doesn't want to come back for a child bride. And the church hasn't grown up, hasn't matured into the full stature of Jesus Christ. And what does Hebrews describe that to be? Hebrews, I've got it in the notes somewhere. I'm jumping around all over the place. My mind does it sometimes. Um, Hebrews chapter 5 says, uh, "Those though you ought to be on spiritual meat by now, you're still on milk. Those on milk, infants on milk, notice what it says? They are not acquainted with righteousness. And then he goes on in six, chapter 6 verse 1, to continue with the thought, they focus on acts that lead to death. They focus on acts. They're behavior focus. Do and don't. A list of rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. This is children thinking. Why does a child brush their teeth? Because mommy said so. Don't do it. And if I don't, if I don't brush my teeth, I'll get punished. Acts that lead to punishment. This is what they focus. This is child infant thinking. Not acquainted with righteousness. Why does an adult brush their teeth? Because they understand the law and they want to live in harmony with it. They're righteous. They're set right. God is waiting for the church to grow up. Second paragraph. As the supreme head of the universe, the creator God has established laws for all his creatures. When Jesus Christ voluntarily transformed himself into human flesh, he gave himself to a life of obedience to his Father and to his commandments. Thus, everything that Jesus taught, the perspectives that he put on the law, and the new commandment that he gave was always in full harmony with the law of God. What does it mean that God established laws? For all his creatures. God made rules we must follow or else we'll be legally guilty and breaking the rules and God will have to punish in order to be just. Is that what it means? Or God who is love built his universe to operate upon principles that are in harmony with his nature. And deviations from these principles are incompatible. Well, here's some Bible texts. I want you to think about these texts. This is Proverbs 12, 28. In the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality. Think about that. What does that mean? In the way of righteousness, there is life. Why? Why in the way of righteousness there is life and immortality? Or Proverbs 21, 21. He who pursues righteousness finds life. Excuse me. He pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Notice again, righteousness is being connected with life. Or Psalms 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving. What's reviving mean? Somebody's like had a heart attack and you revive them. What have you done? Yes, it's bringing life. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How does the law of the Lord revive the soul? 
Well, if you're deviant, if you're a transgressor, this is a simple example, and you've put a plastic bag over your head, and you're getting dizzy, and you've passed out, and we take the plastic bag off, and you're breathing air again, what's going to happen to you? You're going to revive. When you're put in harmony with how things are designed to operate, it's revitalizing, it's restorative, it's regenerative, it's healing. And that's why all the New Testament, I won't read these texts to you, but they're all in the notes, about love is fulfillment of the law. You've all heard those over and over again. Love is fulfillment of the law. I will jump down, though, and tell you how our church used to teach it. This is a first quote is Christ's Object Lessons 258. In living for self, man has rejected the divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow man. Thus he has rejected life. For God is love and love is life. Wow, that's pretty straightforward. Great Controversy 493. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God, it is transgression of the law. Notice what it is. it, It defines this. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. Notice transgression is not a behavior. It is the outworking of a principle that is opposite the principle of benefits that you're giving, opposite the law of love upon which life is constructed. Here's Great Controversy 493 also. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. Why does happiness depend upon harmony with God's law? Why? Explain it to me. This is not a trick question. It's very straightforward. I really want you guys to understand how God's universe operates. It's in here. Why? Why? Give me some why. Where does happiness come from? For life. Life depends on them. Yes. So, yes, you have to be ha- alive to be happy for sure. Okay. If you're not alive, you're probably not happy. Okay. <laughs> All right. But more than that, I'm going to tell you a lot of people, I have a lot of patients that come see me and they'll say, I say okay, after I take the history, I'll usually end up the, the interview before I start talking about what we're going to do with the question. Well, tell me what is your goal for coming to see me? What do you want to have happen for coming here? Very commonly, people will say, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. Do you guys know where happiness comes from? I think like what it says in Proverbs, how righteousness kisses um, kisses peace, that goes together. Mm-hmm. So if you have peace, you're happy. And where does where, so happiness really? It's a byproduct of healthiness. Think about the domains of your experience. When you're unhealthy, your happiness is under physical. When you're physically sick with the flu, are you happy? No. Okay, that's physical health. How about relational health? When you're relationally in conflict and you're going through a divorce or a breakup or something or a conflict with your parents, are you happy? No. no. When you're spiritually unhealthy, you're in sin, you're, you're convicted with guilt, you're ashamed, you haven't been reconciled to God, are you happy? No. When you're psychologically unhealthy, you believe lies in your head, I'm no good, people think I'm stupid, I'm ugly, you have these lies, are you happy? No. Happiness is a byproduct. It's the outgrowth of healthiness. And how do we get healthy? Can a doctor get a patient healthy outside the laws of health? No. Healthiness comes from living in harmony with God's design. Thus, the quote, law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depend upon their perfect accord with his great principles of righteousness. That's because that's how life is built. And when we're in harmony with it, we're healthy and we grow and we're more vital. But when we deviate from it, we damage and injure ourselves and cause us pain and suffering. It undermines happiness. 
And then I, this, this, this um, paragraph in the lesson started with these words, as the supreme head of the universe, this last quotation out of Signs of the Times, April 15, 1886, notice these words, as the supreme ruler of the universe. God, now I love this, you just get your mind, and notice the contrast between this, this, this lesson which takes human law and then, in, in the first paragraph, and then extrapolates it down to how God runs his universe. Notice how this author takes the supreme ruler of the universe. It says, as the supreme ruler of the universe, God has ordained laws for the government, for, for the government, not only of all living beings, but for all the operations of nature. Everything, whether great or small, animate or inanimate, is under fixed laws which cannot be disregarded. There are no exceptions to this rule. For nothing that the divine hand has made has been forgotten by the divine mind. But while everything in nature is governed by natural law, man alone, as an intelligent being, uh, capable of understanding its requirements, is amenable to moral law. To man alone, the crowning work of his creation, God has given a conscience to realize the sacred claims of divine law and a heart capable of loving it as just, holy, and good. And a man, and of man, prompt and perfect obedience is required. Why is it required? Why? Yet God does not compel him to obey. He has left a free moral agent. Why is prompt obedience required? What's the reference? This is Signs of the Times, April 15, 1886. Why is it required? You can't live out. Why is it prompt breathing required when a baby is born? When a baby is born, prompt breathing is required. Why? Because that's the way it's built. That's why it's designed this way. So did you notice that this quote described natural or design law? Fixed law that universe is designed to operate upon. Satan has infected the mind with the lies that God's government is like an earthly government which requires him to be a grand judge in the sky and that's why we're going to go through most of our day's lessons this week because there's some things in there we really need to unpack sunday's lesson read uh, first paragraph it says some believe that the ten commandments delivered through moses at sinai were relevant only to the israelites before the cross and are not binding on the new covenant era of grace others teach that christians are free from the old law but only but only those of jewish heritage and not christians are still expected to adhere to it As we have seen, though the Bible does teach that the works of the law can save no one, no passage gives a person license to violate God's law. If it did, it would be a license to sin, and the Bible would blatantly contradict itself as a, on a crucial topic. Thoughts about this paragraph? Externals. Yes, yes. Did you notice the, the focus is, is really behavioral? It's a behavioral focus. This is that infancy we talked about. That quote I've got here now in Hebrews chapter 5, 11, verses 6, 1. The immaturity of focusing on the do's and the don'ts and behavior. But it's not about behavior. What God focuses on is character. What is the character? God is longing to grow up his church so that they actually are like him in character. He says in John that when he returns, we shall see him face to face. And there's a reason given. For? What's the reason given? We shall see him face to face because or for we shall... Be like him. We shall be like him, is what it says. That's why we get to see him face to face, because we, we've had the, the character of Christ reproduced with us. Again, one of the founders of our church, it's not in the notes, but one of the founders of our church, what our church used to teach is, when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come. Again, we will be like him. We are recreated, we're healed, yes. Somebody said, oh, okay, I thought somebody said Tim. Uh, second paragraph says, 
in this context, we remember that God revealed the terms of his covenant to Israel on tablets of stone that contained the law. However, the Bible contains many other commandments that cover details not found in the Decalogue. In seeking a comprehensive understanding of God's will, the rabbis counted 613 scriptural laws, which they anchored in the Ten Commandments. Jesus appears to go beyond the rabbis when he announces that he has come not he has not come to abolish the law of the prophets. While summarizing while summarized in the Ten Commandments, the law of God contains every divine command spoken directly to or through his prophets. Really. That's where we get kosher from, those Ten Commandments. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Don't wear clothing of mixed fibers. Don't wear it yet. A, a, a priest with poor vision can't work, work in the temple. I could go on. Did the Ten Commandments... Oh, I'm warning you, it's a trick question. <laughs> Did the Ten Commandments contain the covenant of God? Or were the Ten Commandments given to expose sin and expose the desperate need the Israelites had for the covenant of grace? Here's, what our, again, what our church used to teach. This is out of the Faith I Live By, page 77. It's going to blow your mind. Really, it's going to blow your mind. As the Bible presents two laws, one changeless and eternal, the other provisional and temporary, there are two covenants. As the Bible presents two laws, one changeless and eternal, one, the other provisional and temporary, so there are two covenants. Before I even go on, I want you to start thinking, which law is eternal and which is temporary, provisional and temporary? And I'm specifically, you, I want you to think right now in your mind, wh- where do you put the Ten Commandments? Under the eternal law or under the provisional and temporary one? Do you know the church today teaches that it's the eternal law? Hmm. If it's eternal, then, then can it be added on later? If the law is eternal, can it be added on later? No. Or if a law is added later, then it must be provisional and temporary, right? right? Okay, keep that in mind. The covenant of grace was first made with man in Eden, when, after the fall, there was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. To all men, this covenant offered pardon. And the assistance of grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. Notice, the covenant offered the pardon and then assistance for transformation through faith in Christ. It also promises them eternal life on condition of fidelity to God's law. Thus, the pa- And you understand what that means, right? Everybody understands that. Because you can't live outside the harmony with it. That's why. That's how life is built. Thus, the patriarchs receive hope of salvation. The same covenant was renewed to Abraham in the promise, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, Genesis 22:18. This promise pointed to Christ. So Abraham understood it, and he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It was, thus, it was this faith that was accounted to him for righteousness. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. The testimony of God concerning his faithful servant was Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ, not the blood of animals. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ, and it is called the second covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the second covenant 
or the new covenant because the blood by which it was sealed was shed after the blood of the first covenant. The covenant of grace is not a new truth for it existed in the mind of God from all eternity. This is why it is called the everlasting covenant. Oh, so the covenant of truth, the covenant of grace, the covenant of God's character of love that we're going to see here is the covenant that is everlasting. There is hope for us only as we come under the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace by faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel preached to Abraham, though through which he had hope, was the same gospel that is preached to us today. Abraham looked into Jesus, who was also the author and finisher of our faith. Now, question. Have you all time to think, what law, according to scripture, was added? I'm asking you this question. There's, a, there's two laws. There's an eternal law, and there's a temporary, what was the word used here? You know, there's a provisional and temporary law. Romans 5, 20 says, The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Which law was added so that we might have an increased awareness of sin? Ten Commandments. How about this, Galatians 3, 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise refers has come. What law then was added? Which is that provisional temporary? Well, this is how, our again, our church used it. What I'm teaching you is what our church was founded upon. This is, what, this is from one of the founders. His first quote is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 364. If man had kept the law of God as given to Abraham after his fall... Excuse me, if man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. If the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon tablets of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would not have been the uh, need for the additional directions given to Moses. And this is out of First Selected Messages 233. I am asked concerning the law in Galatians, what law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer, both the ceremonial and moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. In this scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, is speaking especially of the moral law. You see, the Ten Commandments are a distilled version of God's eternal law, specially designed for a humanity stuck in sin. That's what it was designed for. It was added for our need. That Ten Commandments in that version did not exist before human sin. Angels didn't need a law that said you will pass the iniquity down three and four generations or to honor their mother and father. There wasn't even a Sabbath before Sabbath was created at the end of creation week of this planet. But the law of love upon which the universe is built that we spoke, that we read about earlier, the foundation of God's government, that's the eternal law. That's the real law. I found that quite profound when I read that. What did you all think? this idea. Do you understand that much of Christianity focuses on the Ten Commandments? And, and in our own sanctuary message, they focus on the Ten Commandments. I'm going to keep on rolling. 
we don't get stopped. All right, Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Tuesday. The lesson asks us to read 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. And this is, uh, this is from the NIV. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone uh, to win as many as possible. The Jew, to the Jew, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So to win those who, who are under the law. To those not having the law, become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those who, ha- those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win those to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. And then the second paragraph. It says, ultimately, all who become part of God's kingdom will be subject to his law. Consequently, those who minister for God must also be in line with God's will. Paul is quick to state that although he uses innovative methods to reach people, he is always careful to remain under the dictates of God's law. He desires to see people saved. His desire to see people saved will not allow him to compromise the law, laws of God for the laws of God he is asking them to serve. He may adapt to cultural laws, but only if there is no conflict between ultimate law. Principles that govern his methods are the law of Christ. First sentence, it says, ultimately all those who become part of God's kingdom will be subject to his law. What about those who don't become part of God's kingdom? Are they not subject to his law? Really, think about it. The entire universe, all beings, saved or lost, are subject to his law when you understand his law, the protocols on which life is built. Everybody is. You can't avoid it. It's unavoidable. I don't understand this this thing. Only those who are subject, only those who accept and become part of his kingdom are subject. I don't get that. Why will Paul's desire to save people not allow him to compromise God's law? Why Why will his desire to save people not allow him to compromise God's law? For the same reason that a doctor's desire to save his patients will not allow him to compromise the laws of health. A doctor cannot get a patient well teaching them to break the laws of health. And actually that used to happen. Doctors used to prescribe cigarette smoke to patients with lung disease. (laughs) There are doctors right now prescribing marijuana for, for anxiety disorders, which only damages the brain, destroys the prefrontal cortex, which what you need to resolve anxiety disorders, and they will not get those patients well. They will drug the patient. They will anesthetize the patient. They will, they will destroy the faculties of the mind, but they won't get them well. So if a doctor wants to destroy his patients, he teaches them to deviate from the laws of health. Likewise, religions that teach impose law undermine God's plan to heal because they're teaching people to practice method out, methods outside God's design. And it, it leads to fear, it leads to insecurity, and leads to lots of legalism and abuse within the church. Here's my paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. Although I am free and not required to live by the rules of others, I freely choose to identify with everyone's plight and become a servant to all in order to inoculate as many as possible with the remedy to sin and selfishness. When I was when I am with Jews, I respect their customs and traditions in order to not offend so their hearts may be open to be to be inoculated with the truth about Christ. When I am with legalists, I adhere to many rules. I respect their rules, even though I know they don't don't provide a remedy to sin, in order not to offend so that their hearts may be opened and inoculated with the truth about Christ. When I am with those who don't know what 
know about God's law of love or his methods that heal, I respect their customs and don't act in ways that will make them feel inferior or condemned. But I continue to live in harmony with God's law of love as revealed in Christ. I do this in order not to offend, so their hearts may be opened and inoculated with the truth about God as revealed in Christ. To the weak in faith, I empathize with their weakness in order to win them to the truth about God as revealed in Christ. I meet all people where they are in order to open their hearts to the remedy Christ has procured and thereby save as many as possible. I do this for God and his kingdom of love as one who is renewed and empowered by that love. Any thoughts, comments? Last paragraph. We can also understand Paul's reference to the law of Christ as the method that Christ used. It was a method based on love for all people, not just for a select few. Paul does not intend for the law of Christ to be seen as an alternate, an alternative to the law of God. The two work harmoniously together as the loving law of Christ is used to introduce those saved by grace to the law of a loving God. In fact, the entire section in which Paul op- op- so openly explains all that he is willing to do in order to reach the lost is a perfect example of the kind of self-sacrificing love that is revealed in the law of Christ. So now, what do you think about this phrase, the law of God and the law of Christ? You see, it comes from Paul. Paul uses this phrase. Why do the two work harmoniously? What's the reason? Because they're actually one in the same law. Just one in the same law. Emanating from the character of the one who created all things. I think the law of God he refers to is the diagnostic instrument given to expose sin and diagnose our sickness. And the law of Christ he refers to is the full revelation of the restored living law into the being where it belongs. Notice the new covenant. Where's the new covenant? I will write my law where? Understand the law of love is a living law. It cannot be fully understood on tablets of stone. Any more than if I took a, your DNA and we coded it out and, and we wrote it on paper and we actually had your home DNA sequence, we could say we have a transcript of you. And some people say that the Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character. Now, there's truth in both those statements. We have a transcript of you. Ten Commandments are a transcript of the, of the law of love and the character of love. However, when I look at your DNA code, do I know the sound of your laugh, the warmth of your hug, the joy of your friendship? Do I know that by looking at your DNA code? No. You cannot know the law of love written on stone. It was never intended to be written on stone. The law of love was intended to be written in a living being. And Adam and Eve were the repository, the spirit temple, the place where the law was supposed to be. That's why in the old symbolic system, the law was in the building, in the ark. But in the new covenant, the law is in the heart. When man sinned, deviated a different principle, a different law was written in. Paul refers to this law as the law of sin and death. It's the law of fear and selfishness, watching out for number one, being afraid. This is what's written in the heart. This is what we're born into this condition. Christ came to reverse this condition. This is out of Lift Him Up, page 48. The life of Christ is to be revealed in humanity. Man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God, and designed to be a counterpart of God. But Satan has labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him his own image. Notice what's going on. And this is from a book I really like called The Desire of Ages. It starts on page 34. The fullness of time had come. 
humanity becoming more degraded through the ages of transgression called for the coming of the Redeemer. Notice what's happening to humanity. In the course of time, you see right all the way up to the flood in Genesis 6, humanity becomes violent and violent all the time. God washes things clean, starts over, and guess what happens in very short order? We're being degraded again. Degraded by what? By our own indulgence of our selfish nature. So humanity becoming more degraded through the ages of transgression called for the coming of Redeemer. Satan had been working to make the gulf deep and impassable between earth and heaven. By his falsehoods, he had emboldened men in sin. It was his purpose to wear out the forbearance of God and to extinguish his love for man so that he would abandon the world to satanic jurisdiction. Satan was seeking to shut out from men a knowledge of God. What's his goal? To make us misunderstand and not know God. To blind us to the reality of who God is. To turn their attention from the temple of God and to establish his own kingdom. His strife for supremacy had seemed to be almost wholly successful. It is true that in every generation God has his agencies. I love this next insight. This is such a wise insight. Most people miss this. Many Christians miss this. Even among the heathen, there were men through whom Christ was working to uplift the people from their sin and degradation. That's beautiful. That's wise. That's right. Okay. Notice the next words. You're going to love this. <laughs> or you're going to resonate with this, should I say. But these men were despised and hated. Whoa, you mean somebody even out in the heathen world who is trying to teach the truth about God and uplift men to God's character of righteousness, they get despised and hated? Wow, that's so, so shocking, isn't it? <laughs> Many of them suffered a violent death. The dark shadow that Satan had cast over the world grew deep, deeper and deeper. Through heathenism, Satan had for ages turned men away from God. But he won his great triumph in perverting the faith of Israel. By contemplating and worshiping their own conceptions, the heathen had lost a knowledge of God and had become more and more corrupt. So it was with Israel. The people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of truth had become representatives of Satan. They were doing the work that he desired, they were doing the work that he desired them to do, taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look upon him as a tyrant, the very priest who minister in the temple, had lost sight of the significance of the service they performed. They had ceased to look beyond the symbol of the thing to the thing signified. I can't tell you how often this happens. They look to the symbols. The symbols become meaningful in their own right. We do the rituals, and the ritual has some power. We have to do this ritual. We have to do that ritual. Like in Christianity, I know people who, who ha- have this magical thinking about things like baptism or communion, and, and somehow there's some power in this, in this ceremony. There's not. They're symbols to enlighten the mind to something higher and grander. In presenting the sacrificial offering, they were as actors in a play. I love that. It was a grand stage, cool costumes, neat script. They were playing. They were, it was a play. It's what it was. The ordinances by which God himself had appointed were made the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. God could do no more for man through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. The deception of sin had reached its height. All the, agents, all the agencies for depraving the souls of men had been put into operation. Satanic agencies were incorporated with men. The bodies of human beings made for the dwelling place of God had become the habitation of demons. You know when it talks in the Bible about, in Revelation before he comes, but Satan sets up, there's a, they become the synagogue of Satan, what it says there. Those who, who reject God become the synagogue of Satan. That's what it's talking about. They become to ha- become the, the, the habitation, if you will, of say, Satan's method, Satan's law, the law of sin and death. They become self-centered, they exploit others, they abuse, they coerce, they dominate, they dictate. 
the law of Satan, the law of sin and death is written in their character. That's what they become. The body became the habitation of demons. The senses, the nerves, the passions, the organs of men were worked by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. The very stamp of demons was impressed upon the countenance of men. Human faces reflected the expression of the legions of evil with which they were possessed. Such was the prospect upon which the world's redeemer looked. What a spectacle for infinite purity to behold. Sin had become a science, and vice was consecrated as part of religion. Rebellion had struck its roots deep into the heart, and the hostility of man was most violent against heaven. It was, I love this, it was demonstrated before the universe. Demonstrated. What's demonstrated me? It was shown to be. It it worked itself out. It revealed itself. It was demonstrated before the universe that apart from God, humanity could not be uplifted. Now notice what's necessary. The very next thing is I tell you what is needed to uplift man. A new element of life and power must be imparted by him who made the world. Notice, a legal payment to pay for their offenses must be made by a perfect sacrifice was not said here. Because it was never needed. A new element to, to fix what's broken in man, to uplift us, to restore us. With intense interest, the unfallen worlds had watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth. And if God should do this, Satan was ready to carry out his plan for securing to himself the allegiance of heavenly beings. He had declared that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. Now we've had that other text I've said in here many, many times where it says in um, Desire of Ages, page 692, every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan. Theologies that have God required to punish sin are satanic. But notice this one. This is another cool one. He had declared, Satan had declared that the principles of God's government make forgiveness impossible. And so theologies that teach God cannot forgive also are satanic. 672. 692. On the other quote. And how how do they teach this lie? When they teach that Jesus died to pay our sin debt. Notice, if Jesus died to pay our sin debt, our debt is paid. It doesn't have to be forgiven. If you're in debt for $10,000 and your brother comes and pays the debt and the guy who owes you the money collects the money, he can't then turn to you and say, now I forgive your debt. Your debt has been paid. It's not forgiven. It's paid. And this is, this is Satan's lie. Satan says God can't forgive our debt. Can't do it. Has to be paid. Had the world been destroyed, he would, Satan would have claimed that his accusations were proven true. He was ready to cast blame upon God and to spread his rebellion into the worlds above. But instead of destroying the world, God sent his son to save it. Notice what he said, to save it. Though corruption and defiance might be seen in every part of the alien province, a way for its recovery, a way for its recovery was provided. At the very crisis when Satan seemed to triumph, the Son of God came with the embassage of divine grace. Through every age, I'm going to read this sentence slow. Through every age, through every hour, the love of God has been exercised towards the fallen race. You think about all that Old Testament. 
Every age, every hour, the love of God is being exercised. Notwithstanding the perversity of man, the signals of mercy had been continually exhibited. And when the fullness of time had come, the deity was glorified by pouring upon the world a flood of healing grace that was never to be obstructed or withdrawn till the plan of salvation should be fulfilled. Satan was exulting that he had succeeded in debasing the image of God in humanity. Then Jesus came to restore in man the image of his maker. None but Christ can fashion anew the character that has been ruined by sin. He came to expel the demons that had controlled the will. He came to lift us up from the dust, to reshape the marred character from the pat- after the pattern of his divine character, and to make it beautiful with his own glory. Isn't that awesome? Notice what is described here. This is what our church used to teach, that Christ came to take man broken in sin and lift him up and heal him and restore him back to God's design to put the law back into the human species, back in the temple where it originally was intended to be. That's the the plan. Salvation is healing, restoring, and recreating, making us like him. This is accomplished only through rejecting the lies about God, accepting the truth that Jesus reveals, being one to trust, and opening the heart and trust to the Spirit who dwells in his temple and restores in you the righteousness of Christ. Wednesday's lesson, second paragraph. According to Paul, grace should empower the believer to live an obedient life. Though, as we all know too well, we don't always live uh, as obediently and as faithfully as we should. Why doesn't the message taught by Christianity move people to live victorious lives more often? Does the message of... Wendell, you want to say something? Please don't all talk about externals. If you be converted, then you will live a victorious life. And yes, you will have failures and whatnot, but Christ's grace can empower us to change us so that we will be living the eternal life. So, so with, I agree with you completely. Let's throw in another Bible text and, and, and weave it in with what you're saying. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. When are we living right now? Yeah, so it's talking about our days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Is he talking about the atheists and the agnostics? No. He is not. These have a form of godliness. These are religious individuals he's talking about here. But they deny the power. So according to scripture, what is the power? Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Wait, how can they deny the power? How can they deny the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news? What good news is presented as the primary good news in most of Christianity? Christ died Christ. Now that's good news. That through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. That's good news. That's not what's generally presented. Julius, Christ died so that God will see us. And, how, and how, how are people brought... You mentioned conversion, when we're converted. How is conversion typically taught out there? Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin. And then how do you get converted? By accepting, the, accepting it. By accepting the payment in your behalf. Saying the sinner's prayer, Jesus, I accept your blood in my behalf. And then we even have ideas taught to us. 
We have these images like our record books in heaven will now have pardon stamp on them. Or Jesus covers us with the robe of righteousness and the Father looks at us. We don't have to fear the Father seeing our sin because, well, Jesus is standing between me and the Father and he can't see me anymore in my wickedness. Think that through. This court, that's not what our church originally taught. I read you last week or the week before Christ Object Lessons where she says that when the, the thoughts, the heart is brought in harmony with his heart, the thoughts are brought in unity with his thoughts, or desires are, are, are merged, harmonized with his, we live his life. This is what it means to be covered by the robe of righteousness. Amen. That's page 311. That's what our church used to teach. We don't teach that consistently anymore. The good news is primarily about God. Remember the quote I just read from the Desire of Ages earlier, how there's this war, this conflict, how Satan has come to misrepresent God's character. Many people believe the good news is that Jesus died to pay your penalty so that you can have eternal life. Let me ask you, would it be good news if you could live eternally in a universe with God if God is the kind of being Satan says he is? If God's like that, is that good news? You get to live with him forever. No. No. The, The primary good news is not about Living eternally, the primary good news is, whoa, God is not like that. God is like this. That's amazing. That's the good news. Third paragraph. It says, it is important to remember that everyone is subject to temptation and can submit to sin in moments of weakness. With this recognition, it is insensitive for a person to immediately condemn a fellow Christian who has fallen. Even Jesus, who had never sinned, was willing to assist those who have been overcome by sin. Ellen White wrote of Jesus, quote, he did not uh, censor human weakness. Thoughts about this? Is human weakness sin? He didn't censor human weakness. Is human weakness sin? No. No, it's not. The lesson sounds, again, very behavioral. And and it sounds like they're making sin almost behavioral, but it's not. Sin is a heart motivational. It is character-driven. A person who has been reborn and has a new heart and right spirit is still plagued by human weakness, conditioned responses, old habits, misunderstanding, confused ideas, distorted thinking that hasn't been uh, purified by the truth yet, but their heart wants to be, and so they're subject to stumbles and falls without any intention to be deviating from God's design. Thus, there is no rebellion in the heart. There is no, and, there, and as soon as they're aware of their stumble and fall, there's grief in the heart. Oh, what a wretched man am I who will save me from this body of death. I don't want to be like this anymore. So consider a husband and wife who love each other, and they're in a healthy marriage relationship, but they're still subject and encumbered with human weakness. Their hearts are for each other, but they get tired and fatigued and in a moment might respond with a sharp reaction or a sharp word. In so doing, have they given their heart to another? No. They haven't given their heart to another. Do they want to be with another person? No. Have they betrayed their trust? No. And as soon as they realize that their comments were sharp and hurtful, there is grief in the heart. I am so sorry. And they acknowledge their wrong and they ask for forgiveness. I am so sorry. It's character-driven. This is why the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, on the heart. As we walk, walk with God in humbleness, our characters are changed, our neurobiology changes, and our, our, our wisdom grows, our un- awareness of truth grows, and so our stumblings become less. We are like those infants growing up, and as infants grow up, they stumble and fall, but as they grow, they stumble less. Thursday's lesson. Tim. Yes. Did you want to say anything about the next paragraph? Uh, I don't know that I even looked at the next paragraph. 
Read the first or second. The law of Christ is is driven by mercy. Yeah. Had it not been for sacrifice, there would be no reason to keep the law of God. Oh, I, yeah. You know what? I just overlooked that whole sentence. I was moving. <laughs> really. Is that true? Had there been, if not for the sacrifice, there'd be no reason to keep the law of God? So the angels in heaven have no reason to keep the law of God because he, they don't need his blood sacrifice. He didn't die to pay their penalty, to pay their sin debt, so they don't have any reason to keep it. Yeah, I, I think it's, again, notice it's that imposed kind of thing. Let, let's, let's, I want to finish with the judgment aspect because I think there's some real important things here in the judgment we need to look at. The first paragraph says, Although God's law is a law of mercy, God will eventually use it as a standard of judgment. God has continued to provide opportunities for sinners to repent and pledge loyalty to him. But the hour is coming when the cry will go out, let every evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And... Do you notice how this is worded to make it sound, at least to me, like he's going to have this standard and we're going to be compared to it and there's going to be a judicial finding and, uh, you know, then some conviction coming from the judge. But the uh, paragraph actually betrays them because the paragraph quotes the Revelation 22 text and you notice what it quotes. It doesn't quote an imposed process, it quotes a natural process. Let him who is filthy be filthy. In other words, let the people reap what they have sown. If you have sown unto righteousness, you now are going to be righteous. If you have sown unto wickedness and solidified your, yourself into wickedness, this is the, the, what the unpardonable sin, persisting in deviation from God's design so long that you destroy the faculties that are sensitive to the movements of the Spirit of God. No amount of truth or love has any impact upon you. Let you go. Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. This is, this is what it is. It's, it's a natural result. And then Revelation 14, 7, the hour of God's judgment has come means the hour that, we may, that God makes a judicial decision or the hour we judge God to be trustworthy or not. Now, Romans 3, 4, let God be true even though everyone else is a liar. It is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is Paul speaking about God. And then the last thing I want to finish up with is in Thursday's lesson, it says, although Christ had laid aside his divine nature when he became human, he still had a special relationship with the Father. When the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy, he informed his accusers that God had given him authority to fulfill specific divine tasks, one of which was judgment. The fact that Christ has been assigned the responsibility of judgment demonstrates the mercy of God because Christ had become one with the human because Christ has become one with the human race, he is in a position to judge impartially. Given his familiarity with the human experience, Christ would not condemn a, personal, a person unjustly. In fact, Christ suggests the condemnation does not come from him, but that the unrepentant sinner condemns himself when he refuses to heed the commands of God. <laughs> I'm just incredulous with this. Think, think, think through what this thing just said. I mean, there's so many problems with this. Um, because Christ has given, become one with humanity, the human race, he is in a position to judge impartially. Given his familiarity with the human experience, Christ would not condemn a person unjustly. That's what it said in the lesson. First, the entire scenario is flawed. It's based upon that imposed law that uh, misconstrues the, the judgment thing in a court, but it gets much, much worse than that. What are they actually saying? Notice what they're saying. Unbelievably, this is what they're saying. God would be unjust. That's what they're saying. 
God can't judge impartially. He hasn't been down or he hasn't experienced this. He would be unfair to us. I'm beside myself. Yes. Even the first sentence says that Christ laid aside his divine nature. He didn't. He was fully divine and fully human. And he didn't access that divine nature to serve himself. That's exactly right. Exact, so many problems here. So first problem is, I think what Russell said, that they, they kind of distorted a little bit Christ, you know, who he was. Yes, he only uses human power, but he had access. And that was the part of the temptation. Turn these stones into bread. When was the last time you were tempted to turn stones to bread? It's never been a temptation for me. Um, but, there, but the bigger thing here is that, that somehow Christ, and it's even backwards in its logic. Number one, it implies that God would be would not be able to be impartial. And then number two, it says because Christ suffered as a human being and went through our experiences, now he'll be impartial. He did that for us. He would actually be very much partial to us and be on our side. He'd be our advocate. And that's what the Bible actually teaches. He's not impartial. He's on our side. He did it for us. So they undermine God and they undermine Christ. <laughs> Both in this paragraph, um, but but worse, they actually misrepresent the entire judgment. A more accurate view of the judgment is in Zechariah three. And this is what it says in Zechariah three. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Notice that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's making accusations. And and now what happens? And, and the Bible says, then the Lord opened the record books of heaven and began to investigate the history of uh, Joshua's life. No, didn't happen. He says the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Rebuke you. Is this not? Is this man not a man? Uh, a burning stick snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before them, "Take off his filthy clothes." They said. To, then he said to Joshua, "See, I have taken away your sin." And I will put rich garments on you. Then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. What's saying here? This is what really happens in the judgment. Yes, the devil's going to accuse, of course. And all of heaven says, speak to the hand. We're not listening. The Lord rebuke you. When he went to raise Moses... Jude gives us the history. What happened? He starts to protest and, and, and rail against Moses' sin. And the Lord just said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. There is none of this whole re- records, investigation, trial, Jesus pleading our case. That's all bogus, based on, on human law. What did he actually say is, this man has been healed. I have taken away his Filthy rags, which is a symbolic way of saying his sinful character, and I have put on him rich character, or, or rich, rich white pure robes, which means I've restored in him my character. So this would be David. David, the devil gets up and said, David is a murderer and adulterer. And the Lord says, hmm, David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse, uh, uh, oh, no, we have the blood of Jesus applied here. That's like magic eraser ink. We have no record of that. We don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Devil. No, that's not what happens. This is what some people teach, that when you confess, it gets wiped out of heavenly records, and there's no memory of it anymore, and angels don't know about it, and God doesn't know about it anymore. No! He goes, those are the facts of history are true, but it's irrelevant because David has a new heart and right spirit. He's been reborn in the inner man. The law has been written on his character. The old filthy garments are taken away. He has a, a, a righteous character and right heart. He is now in harmony with heaven. Lord rebuke you because those things don't matter. 
Amen. That's what it means, and that's what's really happening. And until we can present this right, then people live in fear under this imposed law construct. They don't have the power of the gospel to set them free. And we continue to, to waddle along as infant Christians, and the Lord is still waiting for us to grow up. My gracious Heavenly Father, we want to grow up. We want to grow to the full stature of sons and daughters as you have designed for us to be, to fulfill the purpose you created us in Adam to be. Lord, we, we ask that your spirit of truth and your spirit of love will be poured out to, to enlighten our minds and expel the distortions and false ideas to restore in us your character that we can live as you would have us live, loving you and others more than self. Empower us now to present this message around the world and in the church and outside the church. Remove the obstacles, those, those persons who were just in the way. Put them aside, Lord, and, and let the message go forward that, that, that you may come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.